Please join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, in the valley, in the shadow, in the pain, You are with us. I thank You for the certainty of Your presence even when we can't feel You, even when we can't perceive You. And so, Father, I pray that You would grant us uh, faith for those times when it's just too hard to have faith. And I ask that You would be pleased to grant us just a regular certainty that You are near us. And so, Father, would You use Your Word to encourage us and to strengthen us and to make us wise unto salvation as we apply what is here. And we'll thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we began an odyssey into pain, a journey into the suffering of the the righteous man, Job. If you recall, he lost his wealth, he lost his security, he lost his future, he lost his children, and then finally, he lost his health. It's possible to endure that type of suffering. And it's possible to make it through the burst of horror. And those of you who have been through those kind of serious afflictions, it's, it's not really the first few days that are the problem. It's the next few weeks and months. It's not just the initial rejection of a potential love. It's the loneliness that comes for the next several months when you think about the delight you would have had. So it is with Job. His trial was effectively over. It wasn't going to get any worse. He had passed the test. All of heaven had heard him proclaim, blessed be the name of the Lord. He'd been able to answer the question of heaven, yes, God is more precious to me than everything else. Now it's time for it all to get better. Right? Well, Wrong. We're told that in, in chapter 7, verse 3, that this sickness lasted for several months. This, certainly the, the loss of his wealth and his family and his security and all of those things lasted much longer, but the loss of his health lasted for months. And during that time, he was visited Uh, by three of his friends. And their interaction begins in chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, And so I invite you to turn there. I'm not going to be reading too much because we're going to cover so much in this time. But I I want you to have your Bibles open and to be able to examine what I'm saying and the way that I'm drawing this out of this book of Job. And so the interaction with these friends begins in chapter 2, verse 11. And I'm going to treat their entire interaction as one whole sermon. It lasts for 29 chapters. I don't know of any other time I've ever attempted 29 chapters in one morning. But the reason is that their dispute or their conversation really surfaces only one central idea. And I'll share that idea later, but... 
this, these 29 chapters reflect really the structure of the book. I mentioned last week that the book of Job is hard to read because it's circular and it, it swirls around various ideas. Remember, the first two chapters had two different revolutions. We saw the, 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 the picture in heaven, then we saw the suffering, then we saw Job's reaction, we saw the picture in heaven, we saw the suffering, we saw Job's reaction, and it cycled. The same uh, thing happens here. There are these three friends, they have three cycles of speeches. Job starts, then Eliphaz, then Bildad, then Zophar, and Job responds to each speech. And at the beginning, I mean, you could probably think of this like a funnel or like a whirlpool or like circling the drain on the way down because it starts off more broadly and on equal footing. Um, the friends will say something and Job will answer and they'll have about the same length of uh, speeches. They'll reply to one another in dialogue. And pretty soon, though, the friends get shorter and shorter and finally run out of things to say. So much so that in the third cycle, uh, Bildad, the second speaker, he only uses six verses in his speech. And Zophar, the third speaker, he doesn't even use his third speech. They have flamed out in their ideas. They are spent. And so, it's uh, that structure then that... Uh, opens up for us several different lessons, several things that really show us how complicated life is and how uh, realistic the Bible is about life. And so these six lessons that I want to uncover, I I hope will uh, help you read the book of Job because these 29 chapters take a while to read and if You don't see these cycles. If you don't see their main arguments, it's going to be hard to read it. I hope these six lessons will make you a wiser person. In other words, I hope you won't make the same mistakes the friends make. And then, I hope that these six lessons also focus you on that one central idea, which is that God is simply too big for your small box. That God is too powerful for you to contend with. God is too wise for you to match wits with. God is too big for your small box. So I want to take the first lesson simply from the example of these friends. And the first lesson is this. Don't speak unless you can improve the silence. Don't speak unless you can improve the silence. The friends show up at the end of chapter 2. And they do the absolute best thing they can. They sit. They listen. They mourn. They join Job in what he was doing. And they comfort him. That encourages me so much. It encourages me that any one of us, 
can bring comfort to somebody else. I think the, the thing that I hear, probably the thing I tell myself the most is, but I won't know what to say. And really, that's perfect. You're the perfect candidate to comfort somebody. Because it's when you don't have all the answers that you can bring comfort. And it's when you think you've got all the answers that you begin to do damage. And that's what the friends did. They comforted and then they started to talk. In fact, in chapter 13, verse 5, Job tells them that they would be wise if they would only be quiet. Reminds me of what... uh, Abraham Lincoln said, it's better to be quiet and thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. That's what these friends did. They opened their mouth and they removed all doubt. And there is no question of the negative impact of their words on Job. Job became angry and at their condemnation and the lack of solution. And they just went round and round and round the same kinds of things, accusing Job, really in some respect, doing Satan's work for him, accusing him of wrongdoing when he didn't do wrong. They accused him of uh, dismissing God when he was holding fast to God. They just missed it on all fronts. In fact, God Himself gives that evaluation of their counsel in the last chapter, chapter 42, verses 7 and 8. And He he just says, Your friend spoke wrongly about Me. And so when you read the friend's speeches, you need to read them and listen to them for what is wrong about their counsel. See, that's not how most of us read our Bibles. We mostly read our Bibles like, what's right here? What's going to help me here? And some of what helps you is to know what's wrong. And so the first lesson is to not speak up unless you can improve the silence. The second lesson that I would point you to in these chapters is very simply this. God does not submit to a formula. You cannot simply make God into a math equation because it won't add up. Faith plus God doesn't always equal a good life. There is no formula. There is no equation. So I think that the structure even of these speeches reinforces this idea that they do, in fact, swirl the drain. The ideas that they're putting forth break down and become weaker and weaker as their speeches become shorter and shorter. Let me tell you this. Okay, Their formula is this. Their formula is the wicked will be destroyed and the righteous prosper. The sinners have a bad life and the righteous have a good life. 
the upright enjoy God's favor while the transgressors suffer His judgment. And so, their implication is then that Job must be a sinner. Because if the righteous receive blessing, Job's not receiving that, therefore, he must not be righteous. And the wicked receive bad things or judgment, and Job is getting that, therefore, he must be wicked. I mean, let me just show you some examples of where they uh, expose this formula. Eliphaz, in verse, chapter 22, verse 21, says, Agree with God and be at peace. Thereby, good will come to you. Or Bildad, in chapter 8, verse 20, says, Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, but he will not take the hand of evildoers. Zophar says, This is the wicked man's portion from God. That's what he's pointing out Job's life. This is the wicked man's portion from God. The heritage decreed for him by God. In other words, the wicked receive judgment at the hand of God and the righteous receive blessing. Now, you can hardly blame them for this formula. Because it is really the formula that you see in all of wisdom literature, particularly in the Proverbs and some of the Psalms, where he, he simply says that um, the righteous will enjoy God's favor. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or stands in the way of sinner or sits in the seat of the scoffers. Then it goes on to say, but the ungodly are not so. They're like the chaff which the wind blows away. And there are these two paths and there's two ways. And you're either on one or the other. And that's the, that's the rule in wisdom. That's the formula. They have scriptural support. One commentator says it this way, the sort of wisdom tirelessly proclaimed in the Proverbs, namely, that things go well for the righteous and must go ill for the transgressor, is here challenged on every score. From the standpoint of the friends, this is nothing other than blasphemy. The fundamentals of their theology would collapse under such views. And so what they're doing is they're espousing a formula. They, they know what makes a person good and what makes a person bad. They know how to tell from the outward appearance whether somebody is good or bad. And they're, they're applying that then to Job's suffering. And Job, in chapter 21, answers them with a pretty important response. And he says, but the wicked do prosper. And you see this everywhere. In Psalm 73 and other places that the lament and one of the things that causes the most heartburn for those who really are sincere about following God is that people are blessed when they don't. 
There are godly people who would love to have children. And there are evil people who abandon them and mistreat them. There are godly people who suffer all sorts of diseases. And there are healthy, wicked people. There are rich, wicked people and poor, righteous people. And that does not equate. And Job says in chapter 21, hey, your formula doesn't fit the facts. I can refute you simply from reality. That's his first response. Second response then comes in chapter 23, verses 10 and 12. And really, he maintains this the whole way. When he, when he, he basically says, the problem with your formula is that I don't fit your formula. I am innocent. I did not do what you accuse me of doing. And I did not deserve this suffering. And he demonstrates this over and over as he makes his speeches. And so, be careful, please, about applying your theology without wisdom. Or be careful about putting a formula on the way that it always works. I mean, I just, I want you to know how nervous I am about this. I mean, I even saw people last week who said at our Easter services we had X number of salvations. I just wanted to say, how do you know that? You have a formula that tells you that? Pray this prayer and you instantly get this? That's not how it works. And so be careful of your formulas. And that leads to the third lesson, which is uh, hopefully going to give you a little bit of uh, indigestion. And that is, very simply, the third lesson is this. You can be right and wrong at the same time. You can be right and wrong at the same time. I want to tell you, the friends were right. The friends had a formula that they had derived from the book of Proverbs. They had a formula they had, they had read in the Psalms, perhaps. They had a formula that they knew was the way that the world generally worked. And they were right. And they applied it in the wrong way. They had doctrine. And they wanted to protect God. And they were right to do that. And yet they were wrong at the same time. They applied their correct theology in a wooden and insensitive way that made them wrong at the same time they were right. They had the truth on their side. But they didn't know how to handle the truth. They didn't have the categories for Job. And when they didn't have the categories and it didn't fit Job didn't fit their categories. They cracked. They couldn't bring their formula to bear on the facts. 
when the facts didn't fit their formula. The other thing that made them right and wrong at the same time is that they were brutal with their counsel. Here was a man whose children had been killed. And they told him basically that his kids got what they deserved. You have to deliver good theology with good love. Because the harshness of their good theology made their counsel harmful. Theology and love cannot be divorced. So they were right and wrong at the same time. They drove Job further into despair. And he, in fact, said that if he were the one giving counsel, he would have spoken differently. For those of you who have suffered And those of you who have experienced just catastrophic events, you know people have come in and they've said the stupidest things, haven't they? They've come in and and they've just minimized it or they've, um, they've just said things they shouldn't say. And they might have been right in the things that they said. They were just wrong when they said them. And so, be careful with your good doctrine and your right theology. The fourth lesson that is in the speeches, but it's really in this whole book, and it's one of the ones that's hardest to get your mind around and your heart around, and that is that God is the ultimate cause for Job's calamity. God is the ultimate cause for Job's calamity. This is the only thing that Job and his friends agree about. They agree that Job is suffering at the hand of God. Job told us that in the first couple chapters when he said, shall we receive good and not evil from the hand of God? Uh, shall we um, shall we receive only blessing? He understood that it was God who brought this. In the narrator, you remember said Job did not sin in what he said. And here the friends are saying that God brought this too, but and then. But they're misapplying it. They're saying if God brought it, then it couldn't, you know, it couldn't be that you're innocent. Chapter 8, verse uh, 2 and 3. How long will you say these things in the words of your mouth? Be a great wind. Does God pervert justice or the Almighty pervert the right? God is bringing this, but He's got to be right in it. And then in chapter 15, verse 4. They accuse Job of doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. God's doing this and you're, you're confusing the issue. 
The friends in Job agree that God is the one who brings it. Now, this is interesting because we get this brief glimpse in chapter 1 and 2 where Satan steps in to the counsel of God and accuses Job and then leaves and afflicts Job. And Satan is never mentioned again. He does not get credit for Job's suffering anywhere in this book. This is very interesting because I think we are inclined to be like Job's friends and try and protect God from being involved in any way in things that are difficult. Or evil. We want to insulate God from trouble. We want trouble and God to have nothing to do with each other. See, there, there are two, at least two, really popular responses to this. One was in a classic book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner denied God's ability to stop evil. God would have stopped this, but He couldn't. What kind of comfort is that? How does that help you when you're hurting? There's another more evangelical version of it that basically says that, uh, you know, what could God do after all? His hands were tied. He had to make the world like this, otherwise, it wouldn't work. And his hands were tied, so he couldn't have done anything. But again, that's not the picture we saw in chapters 1 and 2. In chapters 1 and 2, God could have done something differently. And he was firmly in charge of it. There's another popular reaction called openness theology that suggests that God can't know what is future because he can only know what's knowable and the independent choices of free human beings in the future aren't knowable. So God doesn't know all the trouble that will befall you. And I think that that strips God of His deity. It makes Him something other than what He reveals Himself to be in the Scriptures. You see, they're more modern, more popular, newer ways of trying to insulate God from trouble that God doesn't seem too concerned to insulate Himself from. Their response, I think, is well-intentioned. But... The way that I see this working in the book of Job is that you have at least three levels of uh, causation here. You have the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans who uh, go in and steal the sheep or steal the camels 
and they are definitely culpable for their sin. And then you see Satan who motivates them and Satan who brings about the natural disaster that kills Job's children and afflicts Job with boils and Satan is culpable for his evil. And then behind all of that, you see a sovereign God that, that Job identifies as the one sovereign over those uh, evil agents. And somehow he is sovereign over it without sin or being evil himself. And it's hard to understand. I'm not going to claim that I understand it. But that does help me in seeing the way that this unfolds in Job's life and how the Scripture doesn't seem that concerned about separating God from trouble. In fact, you see other places in Joseph's life when he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And God was right there in the same event. And so, I just submit to you that it's okay to go to God as the sovereign God and ask Him for deliverance. Well, because God is sovereign over this evil and He is the one that ultimately controls and constrains it all, then it would be extra helpful if you were able to converse with Him about it. It would be a great comfort if there were someone who could go between you and God and mediate. That's exactly what Job asked for. And that's the fifth lesson. That there would be great comfort if there was someone who would mediate between God and the sufferer. Job says he would desire to talk with God. I would speak to the Almighty and I would argue my case before God. But he recognizes we're not equals. And we can't. Even though this request to speak to the Almighty, that conversation is just over the horizon. We'll see it in a couple weeks. But Job is certain that he'll be destroyed if, in fact, he does speak face to face with God. So he asks for a mediator in chapter 9, verses 32 35. He says, For God is not a man as I am that I might answer him, <clears throat> that we should come to trial together, that there should be no arbiter between us, who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take away his rod from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear. Of him. For I am not so in myself. And then again in chapter 16, verses 19 through 21, he says, Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven. He who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears to God. He would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. That's what he's after. He wants somebody who would be an intercessor who would go between him and this God who has so terrified him. 
Now, I make this point because Job understands that this sovereign God who constrains and controls is not someone you just waltz up to and have a trivial conversation with. Rather, he understands God to be God. He's not, he's not just a good old boy upstairs. And so, he needs somebody to act as a buffer between him and God. And I have to tell you that that is the glory of being a Christian, isn't it? 1 Timothy 2.5 says there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Romans 8.26 tells us that when we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Romans 8.34 tells us that uh, Jesus, who died and has been raised and is at God's right hand, now intercedes for us. Jesus is that one that Job was after. Which means, you will never suffer like Job. If you have Jesus, you will never be alone in your pain. The Gospel means that you will never be alone in your suffering like Job is. I just want to tell you that is enough right there to keep me believing. I don't talk about this much, but uh, when Marsha and I were uh, had lost our second child, I was there uh, washing him off with the nurse who was weighing and measuring. And as I wiped his still lifeless body, I remember talking to the nurse saying, I really have two choices here. I can reject God and say, you know what? How could you do this to me? I'm done. I'm out of here. Or I could say, you know what? I'm going to hang on to you for all I'm worth. Because the reality is, if I say, I'm done, how could you do this to me? Then, you know what? I'm all by myself in my suffering. And I don't want to be there. And so I, like Job, want to hang on for all I'm worth. And I want to encourage you to hang on for all you're worth. Because you do have a mediator, one who will go between you and God and will hang on to you as well. As you probably can tell from the way that I'm approaching all of these other lessons, this final lesson comes in in sort of a summary fashion simply to say this, lesson six, don't oversimplify your suffering, or your God. 
It is so easy to oversimplify life that we miss the shades and the nuances of the character of God. You see, it's not the suffering that's hard to understand. It's God that's hard to understand. I know so many people have a really hard time believing in God because of the suffering in their life. And the problem is not with God. The problem is their oversimplification of how God ought to behave. And it is so easy for us to do this. Think about this. How many times have you heard things like this? God won't give us more than we can handle. I'm reading the book of Job. I'm just going to say, yes, He will. Or, everything happens for a reason. I just want to say, you may never know the reason. Or, you know, it all works out for the good. Well, not always. Sometimes you die and never find out that good. You see, the book of Job defies cliches. You can't simplify this down to a formula. You can't simplify it down to a cliche. And that really, I'm just going to say this here too. This is some of my concern about most Christian movies. Is they, they present the Christian protagonist as always winning. The college student embarrasses the professor. The widow uh, finds the love of her life the second time around. The football team always wins the championship. The reality is the world doesn't work that way. And it re- rejects being reduced that simply. The Bible doesn't demand it. Christianity doesn't demand it. In fact, in order to be the most genuine... You have to admit, life may not resolve in favor of the Christian. Christians may face hardship and not see God's deliverance. And even even if we promise some premature deliverance, We don't do justice to their suffering and their right to not listen to us. And we sound like Job's friends. We minimize pain when we rush to a solution. So don't oversimplify your suffering or your God. And that really brings me back to this main big idea, which is simply that God is too big to fit in your little box. Your itty-bitty imagination can't hold the God of the universe. And if it takes pain to blast out the walls of your box, then so be it. I just want to say, how much easier to learn from Job's pain than to go through your own. Please, be, don't be so quick. To have such an easy answer. 
Because the human tendency is to put God in the box. To distill God down to a formula. To think that we're always right. To have to protect Him from Himself. And God is bigger than that. And in order to show you that, I want to read you some of Job's view of God. Now mind you, Job doesn't understand his suffering either. Yet his view of God sustains him. Let's give him the final word from Job 26, beginning of verse 1. Then Job answered and said, How have you helped him who has no power? How have you saved the arm that has no strength? How have you counseled him who has no wisdom? And plentifully declared sound knowledge. With, those, with whose help have you uttered words and whose breath has come out from you? The dead tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. So he's pointing out to, Joe, to his friends that their counsel has not been helpful. And then he says, Sheol, or the grave, is naked before God and Abaddon has no covering He stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds and the cloud is not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon and spreads over it his cloud. He has inscribed a circle over the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power he is still deceived. By his understanding, he has shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeting serpent. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? Job's Response is simply, God is bigger than I understand. And I have to say, that is Job's view. That is the view of the entire Bible. We see it most beautifully. Again, in the Gospel of Jesus, that mediator between us and God, where there is this simplicity, yet, This profundity. We find a God in Job that is rich with nuance, thunderous in power, incomprehensible in wisdom, who is not easily reduced to a formula. And the Gospel is the same way. It is not easily reduced to a formula. God is not just doing one thing in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. He is fulfilling perfect love, perfect holiness, perfect wisdom, perfect justice, perfect mercy. And I could go on. It is this God who purposed the suffering of His own Son that with His Son hanging on the cross, He was doing more than one thing. It was not simple, but it was profound. And it was the undeserved suffering of Jesus by which God brought about 
the hope that we ultimately have for a Redeemer, for a go-between, and ultimately for a relationship with God that enables our delight. And so it's my hope that the walls of your boxes would simply be expanded by God's Word this morning. Let's pray. Oh God, Creator of the ends of the earth, who rides upon the wind, who knows the names of every star, who hung the galaxies, who organizes the atoms, who perfectly controls both good and evil as the sovereign King of the universe. Father, we come to You with nothing but humility as we recognize how unable we are to understand You and how quick we are to reduce You. Father, would You forgive us And would You help us to embrace all that You are for us in Christ, all that You are in Your person. And may we, with Job, bless Your name. And Father, would You grant us endurance for our hardship. And we'll thank You in the name of Your Son. Amen.